And so we're looking into Ecclesiastes. And of course, this is the perfect timing to go into Ecclesiastes given by God. But if we talk about our spiritual uh, level, it's actually not right time to go into Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is a very low-level book. Because Daniel would not have written the book of Ecclesiastes. Because David would not have written the book of Ecclesiastes. If it was David, he would not have written the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the uh, author here is the preacher, or the main character is the preacher. And he wrote this book around the time that he's about to face death. And it's at... And it's at that moment he sees that life is vain. This world is vain. In other words, in our terminology, he's finally realizing this right as uh, at the end when he's seeing his salvation. And when you uh, welcome the Lord, you should see eternity. And at that moment, you realize that the world is nothing. And so though throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we see very awesome phrases, right? We see many awesome phrases throughout the book. But honestly, this is elementary. It's beginner level. These are all confessions that needed to have been made the moment you received Jesus Christ as Lord. So think about when you were saved. That when the Holy Spirit came into you, that's the confession you would have made. That this world is nothing. If you have not made that confession, then you have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And you would have seen the glory of the kingdom of heaven. And so Ecclesiastes is such a low-level book. And the fact that he only realizes at the end of his life. And so this was also the confession as he was facing the end and finally starting to grow spiritually. And so this is describing the process of that spiritual battle that goes on when you receive salvation. And I'll talk about it as we go deeper into the book. What it means to live with the Holy Spirit. What it means to fight in faith as I live in this world. For example, Daniel already knew at 17 years old what it means to fight against this world as he was in Babylon. Babylon. 
And so Ecclesiastes is not a model image of maturity. Then why are we looking into Ecclesiastes at this time? Because in this new season, it's time for us to put off the self-centered nature. And it's time for us to confirm that truly there's nothing in this world. And so from that perspective, we can say that there's meaning in Ecclesiastes for us. And also, if you have properly grown in our church, then this book will not be that fun for you. Honestly, it's not, no fun. But why do we go into it? Because it's awesome, right? It has awesome phrases. Right, chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Right, just these phrases themselves are pretty cool. And that because many of these words were received through oral tradition. Okay, Proverbs, better word is Proverbs. Ah. Oh. <laughs> it's because he understands English that he can correct me. If it was Spanish, I just rely on the anointing, but since it's English, I can hear it. <laughs> Even when she speaks Chinese, I don't know if she's cursing me or not, but English, I gotta be careful. <laughs> And what's weird is here, I can hear better. I understand better. It feels as if I could speak English well. It's the grace of God. And so many people, most of you probably think that the topic of Ecclesiastes is this world is vain. But that is not the topic of Ecclesiastes. This word vain in Hebrew is the word hebed. And it's very complicated meaning. It's not just one meaning. Next week we'll go deeper into what it means. But it says, vain is, life is vain. And the world is vain. And it is true, it is vain. And yet, this is not the main point of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is going beyond that vanity and finding the meaning. The reason why we say that this world is vanity, life is vanity, is because in the eyes of someone who doesn't believe in God, that's what they will see. And if you do not grow spiritually to a certain level of maturity, that's what you may see. Because, of course, this world and life is vanity. But the more we mature, we understand that it doesn't end at vanity. 
though this world is vain, we understand the meaning that God has given us. And so an unbeliever, what they see is vanity. They see emptiness. There's nothing. Right? There is no answer to life's questions. Right? Look at all these civilizations. They, they progress and progress. And it seems as if they're getting more advanced. And yet with all civilizations' uh, advancements, can they answer the meaning of life? No. And so when they come to that conclusion, they realize that it's all vain, right? Many attempt to solve this issue, but they always end up falling short. Right? Think about even medicine. There's so many things that modern medicine can heal, but yet there's so many it cannot. And so it's obvious that immature Christians and unbelievers should come to this conclusion that it is all vain. And in other uh, perspectives, life is very complicated, right? Why does this happen to that person? Oh, he seems like a good man. And yet, why does he suffer so? And conversely, as it says in uh, Psalms 73, this man is wicked. And yet, why does he prosper? And so really, life is such a question, isn't it? There's no answer. We cannot solve it. This is the word, heved. And so vanity, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean vanity, but rather emptiness. Like there's nothing, there's no meaning. And so this is the conclusion that, that non-believers cannot help but conclude. But Ecclesiastes' conclusion does not end at vanity. And so the same applies to us. The world seems like vanity. And life is complicated. And, we don't, and when you do not understand what answer it is, It's because you do not understand the order that God has poured out upon you. We can say, discuss this in many ways. But to summarize, if you truly have that standard that God's love is the standard of my life, then there is no, nothing that you cannot explain. And so the reason why you come to this conclusion that life is vanity is because your faith is immature. The deeper your faith goes, the more you receive the great wonders of God's love, you see why life unfolds in such ways. There's no reason for it to be complicated. Now, of course, there may be specifics that happen. But you understand the bigger picture of love and, li- and faith over your life. And so a mature believer will not come to this conclusion that life is vain. 
They will not say that life in this world is so complicated and there's no answer. That's why I say Ecclesiastes is elementary. And so I'll describe this more in detail as we continue. But what I want you to understand is that the topic of Ecclesiastes is not vanity. It's just that this is the, uh, the preacher's characteristic of how he describes what it is he's trying to get across to you. But this preacher, he's not a philosopher. But there is this sense where he has gathered uh, thousands of years of tradition. And, and this was written around the, BC, uh, the 3rd century B.C. And it seems as if he is very heavily influenced by Hellenic philosophy. And it seems as if he uses that rhetoric. But actually, it's knowledge that's been coming out of the stores, the treasures of thousands of years of Jewish tradition. And because he uses that rhetoric, it seems very uh, special. And I'll continue to describe this more as I go into this introduction. And in Ecclesiastes, there are three uh, points of views that we get introduced to. Now, of course, most of the book is written from the perspective of the preacher. But there's also an editor, and there's also an author. And as you know in your life, there's the new self, the old self, and then the self, right? That's complicated. Same thing with the Ecclesiastes. And so, from that perspective, it seems complicated. But when you look at the overall flow of the book, it is not one of maturity or of deep revelation. Ecclesiastes is something that is preached to first believers when the church is first established. And so, Pastor Yoon, when you go build your church, this is the first book you preach. Because you are teaching your congregation that this world is empty. And, but yet, why are we going through the book of Ecclesiastes now? First, I want to help you confirm that this world is truly vain. And second, that in our church there are believers who because they fail to do this fight, they are unable to live in faith. There's so many people in our church who still do not know what it means to live by faith. They do not know what it means to live by the Holy Spirit. Because after being saved, they should have fought for the truth, but they failed to do so. And so we could talk about fighting for the truth in many perspectives. 
But first of all, what I'm talking about is this failure to uh, win over the world with the truth of God. And so you end up living in a self-centered way. And because there are many people like this in our church, that's why it is important for us to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And, but just because we start today, I don't know when we'll finish. If I find that, oh, we don't, oh, this is no fun, then we might stop. <laughs> we might. Because we already have the overall flow of the 66 books of the Bible in our true system. And there are many things still that I will teach, preach out of the entire book. Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, Song of Solomon's, and Job, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, of course, I have preached out of the important aspects of these five books, but I haven't done all of it yet. And then I also have to uh, integrate the entire eschatology in Daniel and Revelation. And so the most urgent is this books of Daniel and Revelations. Though, of course, I've done pieces here and there. I need to integrate it and do it all at one. And so if Ecclesiastes gets boring in the middle, I'm just going to stop. <laughs> But maybe you yearn for it. <laughs> And so because it's no fun, my sermons will be short throughout this period. Yesterday was very short. You heard that it was short yesterday, yes? <laughs> if, if the sermon is long today, it's because of him, not because of me. Amen. And so... And so first of all, what you need to understand that Ecclesiastes is not about vanity. And so this preacher in the Hebrew word is Kohelet. And Kohelet, I'm explaining this because it's a little bit different from uh, the Korean word preacher. And so when I talk about vanity, I'm not going to use the word vanity. I'm going to use the word hevel. Because there is so much more meaning in this word than that one word. And so each sentence by sentence, that meaning is different. And this koelet is a man who's observing between the world and God's kingdom. For example, labor... Uh, justice, riches, uh, language, uh, death, judgment, king, authority, wisdom, joy. And so this koelet is someone who observes these various topics of life. And it's the same thing applies to us. That when you were living in the world, you probably weren't concerned about these things. Unless you were a philosopher, or maybe, uh, <laughs> or maybe a shaman or witch doctor. If you, if you were not one of those things, you would not have interest here. But when the Holy Spirit entered into your life, we have the holiness of God. 
And as you live with this holiness, you collide with the world. And so these topics of life start to uh, affect me. And from that moment, you would have been fighting for the truth. And in these aspects, you should have been persuaded by God for the truth. And those truths should have manifested in your life as you were victorious in this battle. That's what it means to live by faith. In other words, what is life? It is to confirm that the truth is victorious in your life over the world. For example, let's use, an, uh, let's use our church. Right, we say that if you have money or don't have money, it's not a problem. It's not an issue. That's not something you just hear with your ears. Is that truth really your truth? The, Holy Spirit, the Bible says that don't live by money. And so you would have seen that word being embodied in you as you live that life, making that part of you. And so you, would, you confirmed in your life that money is not everything. That is fighting in faith. And at the very least, you understand that it is no longer an element that rules over your life saying that, oh, I have to use money for myself, for my happiness. And that is the first thing that the Holy Spirit began in you as you were living your life after salvation. And so if you have given up on this fight, if you have given up, then you are living a religious life. And there are many reasons why this may happen. Let's, maybe the church does not provide the proper truth for you, or there's lack of anointing flowing, or maybe your own spiritual laziness. And so because of these things, maybe you are unable to fight. But whatever the reason may be, When you fail to fight that fight, you start to become religious and you're no longer living by faith. And this ultimately leads to what? You will be powerless as a Christian. And as I've been saying, Ecclesiastes is something that should have began the moment you received salvation. It's not a book for the mature. Daniel already began this at 17. Realizing that this great Babylonian empire is nothing, that he ignores its commands. He confirmed it as his own faith. And so as you grow spiritually, this is what happens in your life. That one by one, these conflicts of Babylon, these challenges of Babylon comes at you. And as you overcome it with the word, it becomes your promise. And when you are unable to do so for, for a while, you have to fight and wrestle with God. There are times where you will be suspicious of that promise. And that process, I spent 13 years fighting. And so in the end of that, 66 books of the Bible became embodied in my life. And this is not out of my efforts. 
I just open my life to the Holy Spirit. And that let the Holy Spirit live in me. And the Holy Spirit led me in this way. And so when you fail to do so, what is the problem? It's not your failure to try or your effort. It's that you did not open yourself to the Holy Spirit. It's that you did not live a life being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would have left, led your life in this way. If you had let him lead. I don't know what the reason may be. But as it became a religion to you. You become self-centered. And it becomes impossible to live by faith. You don't understand what it means to being led by the Holy Spirit. There are many in our church like this. And so think about this preaching of Ecclesiastes, this series, as your last chance. Do not expect that you'll have another uh, opportunity to go into this elementary part of our faith. We need to unravel these bindings. Even now it's late, but we need to at least go into this fight for truth. If you do not fight this actual fight, then it's one of two things. Either, either you continue to live in your religion, or you end up living in this uh, supernatural, super spiritual sense. You're just constantly lost in mysticism. That, oh, in my dreams this happened. That is not Christianity. It's walking with the living God. God is teaching you how to overcome this world as you walk with him. And through that process, he is multiplying his divinity in you. And so maybe Sunday, you guys are all mature enough. We don't need to go through Ecclesiastes, right? Oh, pastor, it's such an elementary teaching. Oh, it's elementary. It's elementary. So next week, shall we go somewhere else? I feel like it's a waste of time. Okay, let's see. Let's see at least this week. And so this Kohelet, he is observing these topics. And as he observes these topics, what conclusion does he come to? That, ah, this world is full of contradictions and irony. And so as I said, if you are not mature spiritually and you are an unbeliever, this is the conclusion you will come to. That everything will uh, eventually disappear. That no matter what I possess, it's, it has no force before death. Because ultimately we have no answer to death. No matter how much money you may make, death, it means nothing. And so Ecclesiastes clearly shows this result.
And so Ecclesiastes is the elementary teaching to break down these th thoughts. Now, of course, Ecclesiastes doesn't end there. That's not the conclusion it comes to. But to this preacher who is standing before death, he is a very, very rich man, right? And this is not written in a time of lacking, a time of hardship. I'll talk about this a little bit later. But he is realizing the vanity of life, of money, in his riches. And so a mature man, whether he has lots of money or is poor, it's not a big problem. As Paul confessed in Philippians 4, whether in poverty or in riches, whether in persecution, that I learned to be, I learned contentment. That in all things I can do through him who strengthens me. And this is the image of a mature man. But this preacher, he possessed great wealth. And in that wealth, he is facing death. And he, under, he realizes that having all this wealth is nothing. It means nothing. And so if you were mature in your wealth... You would not come to that conclusion that this money is nothing. You would come to the conclusion, oh, I got to offer it to God. <laughs> right? You would, that's all it is. It's what, why find it vain? Now, let's say conversely, you are in severe tribulation. Then this book of Ecclesiastes would be written in a little bit different way. And so for this reason, that's why I say Ecclesiastes is elementary teaching. That he is someone who is greatly influenced by his circumstances. But when you mature, you are no longer influenced by your circumstances. Whether you are frail, whether you are healthy or not. When you, you, the goal should not be changed in God's love for you. That is maturity. That it is impossible for your direction to change that God has set before you if you are mature. But when you are immature, these constant subjects throughout Ecclesiastes is going to change your direction. If I don't have money, I got to go this way. Oh, I have so much money. Let's go this way. And so there's a constant change. This is immaturity. And so from that perspective, I say Ecclesiastes is elementary of elementaries. And so this Koelet who has all this money is standing before death. And though it's a short amount of time, in this time, as he observes the entirety of his life, As Michelangelo saw a boulder, and in that boulder, he saw the statue of David. In the same way, he's starting to discover that though life is vain, in that vanity, he's seeing, finding meaning in God.
And so this preacher constantly uses uh, doubt and also oh, hey. regret. And so this uh, doubt and regret is this word hevet. And why he keeps using this word. Now, of course, this is uh, the, the rhetoric tradition of Judaism. But it's also a part of um, Hellenic philosophy. And the reason why he uses this is this. Is he's taking this hevel to take it back. And so it's like uh, Deacon Kang, he's good looking. And so I'm asking you, is he good looking? Then I say, no, 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 I keep denying it. And then I go to the next guy, is Kang is good looking? No, 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 he's not, he's not. And then the next guy, is he good, is he good looking? And so as I continually deny it, I am affirming that he is good looking. In the same way, he keeps using this word vanity to point out that it is not all in vain. He is taking that word back. And so honestly, the, the, the way that he, use, he preaches it doesn't really align with us. We don't need to take back vanity, right? Right, we just believe. You're good looking, then just believe. Right, just take it in faith. And so Ecclesiastes is just using this to uh, go in the flow of the Jewish tradition. And so what I'm trying to say throughout this introduction today is I'm trying to explain to you why you found Ecclesiastes so difficult to uh, enter into. Ecclesiastes isn't some high-level philosophy. It's not a complicated book. It's just written in a very particular way. And so remember that his goal is to take back this word, Hevel, so that you, he can point you in the right direction. And so as I said earlier, when we begin our Christianity, in that moment, it's, uh, it's not possible to receive all the blessings of God, the promises of God, and embody it in that moment. Now, of course, some aspects, you receive it immediately in faith. But as long as aspects of your life is still rests in Babylon, it's hard to, without doubt, receive the words of God directly. 
and so in these circumstances, you would have come to suspect God's word. And you would maybe have even found emptiness in Christian life. And you might have complained to God. These are all aspects that are true in our Christianity. But what I'm saying is you should not leave these alone. Don't ignore these things. The Holy Spirit's not going to ignore it in you. Because these things hold a place in your heart as unbelief. In other words, we looked at Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. And what does Habakkuk say? He says, God, why do you treat the unrighteous with the righteous? He complains to God. And as he complains to God, God reveals the definition of the righteous and the unrighteous, the wicked. And what, God, why do you leave the wicked in their ways? God, why do you not bring judgment right away? And with these complaints, he has fellowship with God. And as he wrestles with God, he comes to know God's heart. Ah, this is why he doesn't judge. That the definition of wicked and righteous is not Israel versus the world, but it is those who live for themselves. And so he finally understands the will of God and his promise. And he grows in his faith to be praising God. And it, this doesn't apply just to Habakkuk. Like this preacher, this doesn't just apply to him in his short amount of time. But this is a process that anyone who has received the Holy Spirit must walk through. And so how can I say this so boldly? Because when the Holy Spirit, who is holy, enters into me, the refuse of the world is inside of me, and he's not going to tolerate those things to be with him. And with those things, it's impossible to receive the word of God immediately. And the Holy Spirit is not going to tolerate those things. He's going to cut, it out, cut them down. And so... And so this contradiction towards God, this, this devastation towards God. And so you had to pass through these things. And so you would have gone through that process of being able to receive the full measure of God. That this is a process that all men of God must go through. There's some of you who have gone through it and in the middle you stopped out of your exhaustion. There's some who haven't even begun. There are many types. And in our church the same applies. And so because we are unable to fight this fight of faith, because we're unable to receive it in faith, what our life becomes like this. Uh, I did what the church asked me to do. And you try to exclude all responsibility. You think that this is good faith. Oh, that when the church decides, I follow. 
And you think only when you agree with the church's decision. If you don't agree, you would not do it. Pastor told me to do that. Am I the one who tells you to do it or is God the one who tells you to do it? And so if you did not apply it in faith, then it's all unbelief. And so you think that you're living in faith, but you refuse the responsibility. And so instead of receiving from God, you try to rely on other authority, other points of authority. And so you all know me very well. That when a... <laughs> I'm a pastor who loves to make you tumble down that hill that you build up for yourself. Do whatever you want. Do it how you please. And so when I give you permission, listen carefully. Am I really giving you permission? Or is pastor wanting me to tumble down that path? And this is all the characteristics of those who do not fight in faith. Some people, even with their marriage, they say, oh, Pastor Kim told me to get married. No, I will not be responsible for your life. I cannot even be responsible living with my wife. This difficult living even with my own wife. No, actually, it's very easy. It's so easy. But I'm not going to be able to take responsibility for another woman. And so this is what's happening in our church these days. And this is very dangerous. It's because you fail to have fellowship of faith with God. You have not experienced the living God. As it says in Philippians 3.8. That I consider all things uh, under the knowledge of the greater worth of value of knowing him. This knowing him is experiencing him. Because I am meeting with him, I could treat all things as refuse, as waste. But if you fail to meet with him, you say, oh, because Pastor Kim told me, it seems like you're giving up, that you're sacrificing, but you are not. You are simply just refusing to take responsibility. And so whatever the church may say, whatever I may say, it's when you receive it in faith that you are with the church. But when you do not receive it in faith, you are failing to be with the church. Everything moves under this order of faith. And so I'm not telling you not to ask me. That because it's truly important that I pray with you. And it's truly important for you to receive what the church determines. But what I'm saying is on your end, when you receive it, that's what I'm talking about right now. And when you fail to do so, that is the failure to be with the church. And this happens because you fail to fight that good fight. And because you don't fight it, you cannot see what's going on inside of you. You fail to recognize that your faith is based on the lie of another person. And going beyond that, you don't even have the strength, the faith to be able to put to death your flesh. In other words, you cannot fight in faith. 
And so you keep relying on people. And so from that perspective, this book of Ecclesiastes has great meaning in this elementary sense. That though he is a man of great wealth, in this short amount of period before his death, he wrestles with these, these, these thoughts and he uh, solves it in God. But really, it's such a tragedy if this is the moment that you recognize this uh, vanity. You should have already solved it at the beginning of your life. What does he say in Ecclesiastes 12.1? That in your youth, before you say all is vain, acknowledge your creator. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that it's meaningless to recognize this at the point of death. But this is the least of all good options. And so like Daniel at 17, in his youth, that as he meets with God, recognizes the vanity of life and sees eternity, that this is what life is about, finding the true meaning. This is what God wants for you. Amen? And so because we failed to meet with God, as I said, this is people who are living for themselves. That when you do not meet with God, you fail to see yourself. As I always say, see yourself, know yourself. It's not knowing yourself out of your own means. It's because when you meet with God, you come to know yourself. And so at the very least, the standard for your spirituality is even if you fail to be victorious over your own flesh, but at the very least you should know why I'm failing and what I'm suffering against and why I am powerless. At the very least you should know the reason for it. And at least when you know you are able to fight. For example, many of us are so weak to their cell phones, to their mobile phones. And many people try really hard out of their efforts to stay away from their mobile phones. Maybe they'll be victorious on one day, maybe two days. But eventually they will fall, right? It's because the problem is not the cell phone itself. The problem is that they fail to see themselves that keep holding on to this addiction. And because they fail to see this, it's not about your willpower to overcome this. It's about maintaining the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That when you maintain the full power of His Spirit, those temptations won't even come near you. 
that those things will not even be a vessel, a channel for temptation. And yet, why do we fail to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you fail to see this part of yourself. That's why you fail to lay it down. That's why you fail to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why you need to meet with God and see and know yourself. It's not because of the means that is the problems. If you are maintaining the fullness of the Holy Spirit, nothing will be a temptation. That you will not live for yourself. That maintenance of the fullness of the Holy Spirit will make all of these temptations malfunction. They will not work in you. And so it's impossible to overcome these things out of willpower alone. Through willpower. Because you need to make it not be a temptation at all. And that is the spiritual truth that the Bible says. Right? For I have been crucified on the cross with my Lord Jesus Christ. What, does, what can tempt a dead man? And so what is the fullness of the Holy Spirit? It's confirming that you are dead on the cross. Why is the introduction so long today? <laughs> so let's continue. It's because of him. And so now let's look at the title and, and when it was written. Is Ecclesiastes interesting? Should we stop? <laughs> I don't know why I need to keep going over these beginner things. Amen. And look, it's not arrogance that I'm speaking out of. But really, 34 years ago, I, fin I graduated from Ecclesiastes. Right? Why are we understanding the vanity of the world only just now? It doesn't make sense that you are falling to the temptation of the world. When the Holy Spirit comes, it should already be game over. And remember, the Holy Spirit has been continually showing me the victory of his kingdom over the world. Now, there was some aspects that took a lot of time for me to overcome. But that wasn't because of my own weakness. But rather because there was such great outside factors uh, coming against me. For example, like immorality. It's not because I liked immorality. Oh, it's because such a good-looking man was there that they kept coming at me. And it took a lot of time to cut that off. <laughs> Pastor Ham, are you mocking me? <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke, guys. Okay, so the title. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is the preacher. And as I said earlier, it was the word Kohelet. 
And this word is a speaker before the assembly. And so Corlett, at the end of his life, he is uh, preaching his observations of life to the assembly. And so the Septuagint calls it the Ecclesiastes. And so it applies to the word ecclesia, right? Like church, right? Gathering and assembly. And so in that assembly, someone who speaks. And so I don't know how many are gathered. But, but the preacher is orating that, oh, life is vain. And so you will hear this word kohelet very often throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's because when I say preacher, it doesn't have the full context of someone who orates before the assembly. And so many times when you say preacher, does that mean you'll preach well? No, 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 no. And then let's look at the time frame that this book was written. Now, of course, all, entire Old Testament, this applies. And so it was written and, and, and gathered and edited in, in a certain time frame, right? I'll explain in a little bit more detail later. But many scholars come to the conclusion that this book was gathered and compiled around the 3rd century BC during the time of the Ptolemaic Empire. And, and scholars are very accurate regarding this. I saw many books. And when it comes to interpretation, I think this is the best way to uh, go about this book. And I will explain why it's so important to understand the time frame of when this book was written. And so as they go beyond the 3rd century into the 2nd century BC, Palestine gets thrown into chaos. That uh, there is a lot of uh, corruption coming against this Judea Judaism. And it's during that time that there is great chaos in the structure of society. That there starts to get stratification of the classes of the people. And around, uh, one, around 160 BC, it begins the Maccabean revolts. And there is no trace of that kind of flow throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Throughout Ecclesiastes, we see peace and prosperity. And so remember, our spirituality, when we get to a certain level of maturity, we enter into a maturity that is no longer affected by outside factors. For example, in AD 50, Paul was spending the most chaotic time of his ministry, 55. And yet throughout that time, he says peace is upon him. And so the more mature you go, grow, the more outside factors don't matter. And so when you constantly respond to the flesh, that is evidence that you are in immaturity. 
that when suffering comes, you fall? That you fall to every temptation? That means you are responding to the flesh. And so the reason why it's important to understand when Ecclesiastes was written is that this preacher didn't write this book in, in his maturity. Now, this may be obvious because it's not the time of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And yet, what we need to understand is how these outside factors is leading his faith. And so I think it is accurate to say that this book was written in the first uh, half of the 3rd century BC. And as we go throughout this book, I'll explain why this is important. But first, understand that it's the first half of the 3rd century BC. And the second thing we want to see is we talk about this introduction of the, of the character, the preacher. And there's also an editor. A narrator. Narrator. And the, and then the, an editor comes out. Or author. And so there's these three. And so all of this oral tradition is being written down in the 3rd century BC. And many of you probably think that this book was written by Solomon. But throughout this book, there is not one mention of Solomon. And if we assume that the authorship of Solomon, then it's hard to understand certain phrases in that context. Now, there are many cases where words of Solomon are used in a similar way, but it's not even used exactly as Solomon used it. And so it's clear that the author is not Solomon. And so we do not know exactly who this Kohelet, this preacher is. But as I said earlier, it's just a gathering, it's a compilation of oral traditions. And so when you look at uh, the Masoretic Scrolls, it's hard to think of the author of Ecclesiastes as someone who lived long before that time. Be whether he, was he then a Hellenic philosopher? He was not. For, for example, when we look at the New Testament, who is the man who built the church in Eph Ephesus? Apollos, right? Apollos. Apollos was a very famous philosopher from Alexandria. This was before he even met with Christ. But this preacher is not a philosopher. It's clear that he is a rich man. And we'll see that later. And I believe he was very wise. But what wisdom is this? This is really important in the aspects of Ecclesiastes. Then was he a politician? I'm not so sure. But what is clear 
is that he was a wealthy businessman. And he was standing before death. This is very clear. Right? We'll see throughout the text that this is clear. And the thing that gives Ecclesiastes this very distinct characteristic is the fact that it comes from three perspectives of the preacher, the editor, and the narrator, the author and the narrator. And so there are times where the narrator will refute what the preacher says. And that's why Ecclesiastes may be confusing at times. And so coming to the conclusion, there are a couple things that we can see. Because how you define these three characters will determine how you interpret this text. It's not a big issue. Because for the most part, the Kohelet is the one whose perspective we see. But so the question is, is the three, are these three one person? This is something that we'll see and unravel little by little as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. Or is the narrator and the Kohelet two different people, but the Kohelet is the same person as the, uh, the narr- uh, author? Or opposite, is it Kohelet with the narrator and the author is a different person? So that means there's two people, right? And last option is that all three are different people. So what do you think? Try, try, getting, the, try getting the answer. <laughs> but as we go through this text, this will become clear. But don't, don't, you, don't think about it too much because it's not that important. But it's fun, right? <laughs> it's interesting that there are three characters. And then, is this Kohelet truly, is he truly revering God? Is he truly following the law? Many times throughout this book, it does not seem that's the case. And he is very judgmental, and he is very ironic, or or skeptical. And so it's like this. Oh, can you truly live in faith? Is faith really going to solve your problems? That's what he says sometimes. Oh, because you were worshiping, does God bless you? Right? He's very uh, skeptical. That when you pray, does your life get unraveled? And so it's probably a lie to say that you were never this skeptical. There are many times that no matter how much you pray, it doesn't seem like anything is being solved. And so Coelette has this suspicion and this skepticism that is good religion really going to be the source of my blessing? And so he's skeptical of these traditions of religion. It's fun, isn't it? No, it's not fun. This is all elementary things. Amen. And so how are we going to uh, approach his words? That regarding his faith, he's very skeptical, very judgmental. 
And yet, does that mean he is someone who has completely gone off the path of tradition? No. And so if we apply this to our church, for 20 years you've been attending this church very regularly. And yet every day you're filled in worldliness. And so you're always suspicious of God's promise. And you just, you're just clinging by the tips of your finger. And so at the beginning, that's what the coalet is like. And so if that's the case, you should leave this church. And yet you don't leave the church. But then that doesn't mean that you are not fully in believing God. And so that's what coalet that we can see at the beginning of the book. It's fun, isn't it? That is who the coalet is. There's many in our church like this, yes? Oh, he's sitting over there, isn't he? Oh, he's sitting there too. And so let's go to the third topic. And so all of this elementary conflict, these, this, the skepticism that comes at the beginning of your faith. Ecclesiastes is a good book to help solve those issues. But apart from that use, Ecclesiastes is just a compilation of nice phrases. All of a sudden, it feels like we're not going to finish the book, all right? <laughs> Maybe next week we'll go somewhere else. <laughs> Raise your hand if you want to say, let's do something else. Oh, and middle schoolers, you don't need to do this book, right? Dongyu, isn't this too elementary, right? It's no fun. Oh, because Dongyu is so mature. So third, we want to look at the historical background. Okay, uh, Alexander dies in BC 323. And the Diadochi fight for about 40 years to, to take that, that, that authority. And the, two main, and, and the two main dynasties that were fighting for the control of Palestine was the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty. The Ptolemaics were very supportive of Judaism. But the Seleucids were very, uh, um, per, per, uh, they were very, uh, they, they attacked Judaism. And then so uh, Ptolemaic takes the victory. Ptolemy takes the victory first. And in the first half of the three, third century BC, Ptolemy is the one who reigns over this Palestine region. But in uh, BC 200, around there, they, they lose at the they lose at the Battle of Panau. Pan, Some battle, yes. And Seleucids takes control of this region. And at this time, who is the king of the Seleucid Empire? It is Antiochus III. Someone who is very persecutive of the Jewish church. 
And out of that persecution, what is born is Judaism. Now the framework for this religion was throughout from Nehemiah's time going building up. But the official structures of this religion was born at in this persecution. Right, same thing with uh, the, 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 the uh, Sanhedrin. Uh, synagogue. Uh, because uh, before this time, they were continually offering sacrifices. But throughout this persecution, now it starts to begin this practice of synagogues. And we see the revolution of the Maccabean revolt. And so, evidence of this conflict and this persecution cannot be found in Ecclesiastes. And so that's why I, I say that it's written in the 3rd century BC because we see this change in society and this peace. And the reason why Ptolemy and the Jewish, uh, Jewish religion had good relationship is because Ptolemy used the priesthood to reign over this region. In other words, he, they were his tax collectors. But now the people had to pay two kinds of taxes, and so they're suffering. But when the kingdom of God, when Israel is going in the proper direction, that there is no stratification of the ruler and the ruled. And the, the Israel that's established by, um, by Nehemiah was very agrarian. It was not stratified based on class structures. But as Ptolemy takes control of the region, and because he needs lots of representatives to control and also to receive taxes, he starts to rely on this priesthood, which brings about slavery and which also brings about a stratification, low class and upper class. And so th this a trend gets multiplied throughout the second century. And so it becomes this class structure in society. And at the top was the priesthood. And then there was people who would support that top level. And they were, uh, they were all at that top of the, of the pyramid. And as this Hellenic uh, system comes throughout these empires, they start to use money. And that builds about commerce. And through commerce, we see people who are instantly rich very quickly. And we see this throughout the uh, text of Ecclesiastes. Talking about money, talking about commerce. And so in this context of this rapid change of society, all the traditions of that Jew Judaism in Israel starts to crumble. This is not talking about old times. Doesn't, don't, doesn't this apply to even our times now? Right, through cell phones, through computers. We see culture transforming radically. 
And in that situation, is it possible to hold on to the traditions of worship and of fasting and praying? All over the world, we see churches giving up on these traditions. Right? It's, it's uh, really, uh, no, you will not find a church saying you fast 21 days. You will not see a church telling you to pray for 365 days a year. And so there is this conflict between these uh, traditionalists and these revolutionary uh, religious people. And so the reason why this happens is because as the individual starts to enjoy wealth, and as they develop this desire to, to better themselves and to go higher in society structures, in other words, they are starting to live for themselves. And we'll see this throughout this text. That if it's not for their own gain, they will not move a finger. We'll, we'll see that throughout Ecclesiastes. Do I have to gain? What do I have to gain? And so through this Hellenic culture, this desire for elitism starts to rise up rapidly in Jewish structures. That, oh, we don't need this religion anymore. And throughout this elite class, they are filled with Hellenic philosophy. In other words, Hebrewism is too old-fashioned. And so this is the societal background of Ecclesiastes. And so this preacher is not someone who is for this Hellenic structure. He is not an advocate of Hellenic thinking, but rather he's using that Hellenic thinking to show who is properly God. And going beyond that, in this time, they are not fully uh, influenced by Hellenic thinking just yet. And so this is that battle. It's at that point where there's battle is going on for the culture. And so, for example, in our church, this is the equivalent. That there are some people who are completely immersed in secular living. But there's other people who have one foot on one side. And so should I go this side or that side? This side or that side? And so th this is the time that Ecclesiastes is written. In this conflict. Right? We see many people in our church who has this conflict. That, oh, the world is nothing. Oh, really, this world is vain. Right? But instead of completely turning your back to the world, sometimes I like God. But other times I like the world. <laughs> and so this is the group that this Ecclesiastes is speaking to. You understand what I'm trying to say, yeah? Yeah. 
And so remember, this book, as I continually say, it's not for the mature. And so I don't know when we're going to finish this book. But if you think that you are mature, you don't have to come to church. <laughs> don't come to church. Okay, don't come to church. <laughs> that while we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, you don't have to come to church. And so he uses the rhetoric of Hellenism to, throughout this book. And we can see two overall flows. First is the tradition of the ancients, like the culture of Egypt. And then the second is the culture of, of Greece, the new, new kids on the block. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, we can see lots of philosophies like determinism, uh, fate, uh, um, uh, Epicurean thought, and all kinds of things. And so through these things, he is co conflicted with the questions of life. That, oh, as I said earlier, life is vain. Oh, that, or this is nothing. It's worthless, right? Right, this is, um, I don't know the word. Uh, you, know, you know, the people who think that fate, it's all written already. I, I don't remember the word. And so through all of these various philosophies, he's expressing himself. But that's not what's influencing him. And it's not Hellenism or Egyptian culture that's influencing this. Rather, these are questions that Jewish people have been wrestling with throughout the centuries, and they're just using these methods. And so what I'm saying in a sense is that you do not need to think that Hellenism influenced this book. Rather, because he was living in this time of Hellenic thinking, that he is just simply using their terminology. Same thing applies to Paul. Paul uses this Hellenic rhetoric. But he is rooted in Hebrewism. And so there's no need for us to really be conflicted regarding this. The important thing is that what is Ecclesiastes? Relationship between God and man. And in that relationship, where is true reverence? And who is God? This is what is revealed through this book. And so though he uses Hellenic thinking, worldly thinking, and though he uses that method, that techniques, but Ecclesiastes is not advocating, nor is it influenced by that philosophy. If that's the case, it would not be part of canon. All of those books that were influenced by those things are all apocryphal. And then so next, let's see the structure of this book. The structure is very simple. 
It's just constantly repetition between observation and admonishment. He's just seeing life. That, oh, as I observe, this is my admonishment. And then, and then he admonishes. And so in this way, it's structured. And when we go into the text, we'll see this more in depth. And so observation and admonition. That this is his oration of his entire life. And so whether for good or bad are the background of the Jewish religion. And though he was not mature, he was someone who was versed in the Pentateuch and the law, the Torah. And because he is before death, he is in that good direction where he is relying on God. And so with this background in mind, the Kohelet is observing his life. That, oh, as I see these people toiling under the sun, it's all vanity. It all means nothing. He is observing these things. And then he admonishes them. And so fifth, then how are we to read this book? First, Ah. Okay. And so it's constantly contradictions between for and against. For and against. Like, for example, in the beginning, he says, Rejoice. And then later, he says, Joy is for nothing. Right? We see in chapter 2, verse 2. I said of laughter, it is madness. But when you go to chapter 8, it's, it says that laughter is praising God. Right, chapter 8, verse 15. Well, it says, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun. And so he keeps using these contradictions. And how are we to see these contradictions? Again, this is a conflict only when you look at certain pieces of the book but when you look at the entire picture of the Bible it's not a problem and so what circumstances is he speaking out of and conversely how is he speaking rhetorically right when he speaks of A immediately B that goes against A is introduced and he takes away the power of A. And so this is uh, the, the principle of Hevel. Does that mean that A is unnecessary? No. As I said, in order to confirm, he's taking back that Hevel through using that Hevel. And so it's like this. You prayed in faith to God but you did not receive an answer. Then you fall into despair. Oh, do, does that mean you need prayer? Is prayer unnecessary? People go through this spiritual conflict. And in that conflict, as you have a right relationship with God, that, that suspicion gets taken away. But in that process, you experience that hevel, that, oh, it's all vain. 
But if you don't experience that, that, that vanity, then you are not living with God. And so from that perspective, he's using this contradiction. And so don't think that it's unnecessary. But rather through these things, he is confirming what God is doing in you. And so if you have been living properly in faith, then at this time, in this point, you would be having, uh, being victorious over these things. And for whatever reason it may be, you experience that despair. Right? Whether you'd made a mistake or whether God purposely allowed this to happen. We experience this hevel. And there is a time that God is, has set for us to go back and forth. But eventually the time comes where that promise is 100% in me. It'd be great if it happened from the beginning. But we do not have that measure of faith. And so it doesn't happen right away. And so through this process, uh, speaking theologically, we are learning patience. And what we need to understand is that when this despair happens, it's not God's fault, but because there's something inside of me that attracts that despair. From that perspective, we see that our God is a living God. That God is teaching us this process of teaching of what it means to know Him and for Him to know us. This is all some things that needs to be dealt with at the elementary stages. Right? It's elementary. Should we not do this anymore? <laughs> is it all vanity? And so let's speak of this word Hevel. And I'll go deeper into the meaning next week. But in other words, Hevel means, uh, in, one, in a word, it means uh, empty space. Right? So emptiness. But what we need to consider is that this is not an absolute definition. That it doesn't end at this emptiness. That is not his purpose. It's not his goal is to come to emptiness. Hevel is just an emotion that you feel in that process of getting to your goal. That is just simply his uh, method of teaching. And so we should not conclude at emptiness. And so feeling this vanity, this emptiness is not what's the point. The point is, at what point and why am I feeling this emptiness? For example, there was this photographer who won a Pulitzer Prize for taking a picture of a vulture eating the corpse of a, of a child in Africa. That photographer ended up committing suicide. He said that there is no God. But this uh, a doctor in Korea who saw this photo 
said, this is the reason why I studied medicine. Let me go to Africa. And so he became a missionary to Africa. The same picture, one person commits suicide, the other person goes to missions. Why? Because the level of holiness that feels that vanity is different. And so it's the same thing applies to you. When you see that emptiness, if you commit suicide, that's game over. But when you see that picture and you take back that Hevel, you become a missionary. And so this is the practical application in your faith life. That when you determine that this is Hevel in your life, as you live with God, this is the process that you should have gone through. You should have asked God. God, is this truly Hevel? Then God will never say yes. He'll say no. And so as you have fellowship with him, he would allow you to continually take back that Hevel. It's not just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all 66 books of Bible gives authority in your life. But as this is taken back, this holiness grows inside of your life. As this filth, as this cloud is taken away, we see the light of the gospel shining in your life. This is all elementary. And the third, he talks about wisdom. And so we need to discern whether it belongs, is wisdom of God or not. We'll see that in the text. But the most important thing right now is that all judgment and actions of man is subservient to the will of God. That is the most important point in Ecclesiastes. In other words, as I've been continually saying throughout these days, is that God has the best scenario for our life. That when my thoughts and my judgments, my actions are not connected to God, my life becomes Hevel. Money that I have outside of God, that becomes Hevel. Joy outside of God, that's Hevel. Uh, labor outside of God, uh, uh, that that in itself is wickedness according to Ecclesiastes. That the more you work, the more you labor, the more wickedness you are surrounding yourself. Because remember, work came toiling. Labor came from what? From fallen Adam. And so we need to live connected to the kingdom of God. It says verse one, uh, chapter 1 verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. That means that ultimately we live under God's decisions. We think that through our technology, through science, we can fix all of our problems. No, that's just their own thoughts. Man cannot change life. Life cannot be changed by this world. There is no reason for, for them to determine the destruction of this world. Just because temperature rises a little bit, look at how chaos this world is filled with. That all that the end of days is upon us. 
Of course, the end of days is upon us. <laughs> But that's not because of global warming. It's just a sign that God is giving to us. The world is not going to be destroyed because of a little change in temperature. All of things of man are connected to God. This must have been already laid down at the beginning of your faith. And so that's why I begun my life according to his calling. That as I met with him, as I was going through this process, ah, my life is not determined by me. That I live according to his calling. And so though I didn't want to be a pastor, if God's calling is there, then I got to go. And so I became a pastor. Because under God, when the, if anything that's not connected to God is vain, it's all heaven. In other words, it means that I have seen eternity. Our goal is not, the, the end of our life is not the goal. The goal is when are we standing before God? And when we stand before God, who will I be in that assembly? That's what Ecclesiastes is preaching. And so what we are seeing in the sixth thing is that this Hevel is using skepticism and also contradiction. And so though he says A, B contradicts A. And completely nullifies A. And so how are we going to approach these contradictions? As I said, other words, is, is his method of taking back that Hevel. And so spiritually, the same thing applies. According to your maturity. There are some things where you say, ah, this is truth in my life and I'm going to hold on to this. But as you take away that fleshliness inside of you, you realize that, ah, this thing that I considered my life was nothing. It's empty. That's the process that this is describing. And so in a, one perspective, that A was your truth. But as time passed by, you realize A was nothing. And A becomes nullified. This is showing the difference in your spiritual maturity. And so do not be astonished because of this contradiction and skepticism. And also we should not look at the word of God from the small perspective of just this one book, Ecclesiastes. Right, for example, the entire book, Bible says what? Rejoice. And, but at the same time, in another place it says that blessed are those who mourn. And so throughout the promise of the Bible, what maturity are you applying it? And what relationship is that promise being applied in your life? That's the important thing that we should focus on. And then so the seventh thing, let's look at the topic of Ecclesiastes. This is the last one, last part of today's sermon. It was because of him that this sermon was really long. And so all of this uh, skepticism and contradiction, irony, 
his experiences, his uh, physical descriptions, and his uh, ir irony. Through all of these things, the koelet is organizing his thoughts. But the important thing is that that's not where he concludes. But he connects all of his observations to the word of God. And so uh, this is him using a type of sermon that uses the words of the world to express the things of God. And so we call this... And so we want to talk about today's topic, or the topic of the book. And so we said that the topic is not Havel. So let's look at what Havel is. Or I'll talk about the meaning of Havel next week. But let's talk about Havel a little bit today. And so an empty can. Right, uh, a moment in life, a, a momentary life, like holding on to wind. Or in other words, foolish actions. Uh, this mysticism uh, that you cannot understand. And so in all of these circumstances, the Kohelet uses this word Hevel. And so when we talk about faith from the perspective of the world, it's positive thinking, right? But what's the difference between faith and positivity? This is really important, brothers. There are many times where we mistake our positivity for faith. Right? So what's the difference between positive thinking and faith? For example, let's say that I proclaim, oh, there's a building project. And someone says, I believe, I believe. How can we know if that's belief or positive thinking? Right, we could talk about many things, right? There's anointing or not. But my point is, That when it takes your willpower, your fleshly strength to proclaim it, that's positive thinking. That's the reason why I've been constantly preaching. Empty yourself. That if you do not take back the Hevel, taking away that fleshly nature, then you cannot have true faith. This is, the result is that you have not fought uh, taking away the flesh. And this was the mistake of all those charismatic movements in America, is this positive thinking. In other words, they speak of glory without the cross. To those who do not take back that emptiness in their flesh, they cannot receive God's faith as a gift. And so when we approach this word Hevel in Ecclesiastes, this is what's important. 
that ah, up until this point, I have not taken back these fleshly things through this hevel. And so we're unable to believe that faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.8.9 clearly says that faith is a gift of God. And so without empty hands, we cannot receive. And so through this hevel, we should have emptied ourselves. This is all things that I've been preaching for the past 30 years. And so from this point perspective, this Hevel has great meaning to us. That through this, we are building upon our confidence, our assurance of faith. And so at a point, life seems like an empty can, seems like a wind. But as we take it back and connect it to God, we realize there is meaning. And though it's very short, this life is very short, we understand it's connected to eternity. And so there's a big difference between your spiritual state of someone who has taken back this through this process of Hevel, fighting with this Hevel. And then also, it's about time. Are you, are you in the present? Or are you in the past? Or are you in the future? Where are you? Don't think about this philosophically. Okay, it feels as if we're becoming philosophers. No, I'm talking about practical things. That there's some of you who are seated here, though you are meeting with me in the present, you are living in the past. And though you, though you are with me in the present, you are meeting me in the future. And there's some who are meeting me in this present place and meeting with me in the present. And so Ecclesiastes talks about where are you in time. And so let's look at this spiritually. Let's say you have a great inner wound. That you felt abandonment from the moment you were in your mother's womb. Then that hurt will continually empty, go through time and you are living in that past. That whenever that same issue arises in the present, you come back to the past. There are many people like this in our church. Right in Panama, as I was healing someone, there was a lady who was abandoned by her mother and she's crying. And I proclaimed this and I led her into that past in the present. And so she was seeing that abandonment in the present. And she came to realize how much she suffered at that time. And so she received healing there. And from that time, it was healed. And so that binding that was in the past was loosened. Now there's other people who because of the suffering of the present, they're always looking in the future. Because, and these kinds of people refuse to face their sufferings. And whenever you look at the way they speak, 
Oh, it's gonna end up well. Oh, there's something good happening, but it's empty. And so they put everything into the future. When I don't want to preach, I always move it to the future. Right? I say, I'll speak of this later. I'll speak this later. Right? Remember in Galatians, that's how I preached. And at the end, I didn't do anything, came back. <laughs> this is really important in Ecclesiastes. And so understand how critical it is that you have these hurts. And you, what you need to see is that when you're unable to live in the present, see how powerless you are. And then, is the present you the true you? Now, that's not determined by you, who you are, but it's to, based on who God is. And so what's important is not who you are in the present, but are you someone who can meet with Him? If you are meeting with the present you, you are meeting with vanity. Then you will not have the power of faith. Right? Because all you are doing is meeting your limitations. Instead of meeting with God, you're meeting with yourself. And so though you may be living in the present, it's just vanity. It's empty. It's all bluffing. And that time is going to come up. And so think about it. What time are you living in? The past, the present, or the future? I, I'm not speaking philosophically. I'm speaking in the pract in practical sense. And so people who are limited, right? We are limited. And so we look at time as something that infinitely moves forward, right? We see this in chapter 1, right? That time continually flows forward. That when, rain, when it rains, right, that it goes back up as dew and then comes back as rain. It's a circuit, right? It's a circuit that continually goes forward. And so there are some people who time is continually moving like a cycle. But the time to God is not this chronological time. He is Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And so when you live in that Kairos, in that time of God in your life, then you live in power. If not, you're constantly circulating, 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 living in cycles. And you don't even know where you exist. This is difficult, isn't it? This is fun. Your eyes have gotten very bright. I'm speaking of the practical things that are going on. I'm not speaking philosophically. And so we'll, we'll talk about this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we'll talk... Uh, and we'll also speak of wisdom. I don't know if it's Chie Chang or Chie Kim. And so if we compare this to the wisdom of Ecclesiastes to the wisdom of Proverbs. Right, Proverbs talks about the result of wisdom being prosperity and riches. But Ecclesiastes says the opposite. 
constantly, constantly using the skepticism to question your faith. That if you have the wisdom of God, will you truly be victorious? And so we need to understand what wisdom is being spoken of. And so is it the wisdom of man? Is it the wisdom of God? And in what context is that wisdom being applied? Right, we'll speak of this. And it seems like we have finished. No? We finished. And so what's important in this introduction to Ecclesiastes is that all things of man are subservient to God. And maybe we don't like this word subservience. But what it means is without God, man cannot live. Because, when we, are, because we are created in his image, it's when we are under him that life has meaning. That is the conclusion, yes? That ultimately everything apart from God is Hevel. And at the end, life will be standing before his judgment. And so it's when we are um, repentant towards him, we live in his glory. And so why is it Hevel? Because you do not see eternity. A life that cannot see eternity has no meaning. That if you have met with God, you would see eternity. But without see, if you cannot see eternity, it means you have not met with God. It means that your life is not subservient to God. And so whatever you do, it's all Hevel. No matter how much money you may make, no matter how healthy you may be, no matter how unhealthy you may be, whether you are wise or unwise, it has no meaning. But conversely, And so we have seen the entire picture of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll enter into the text next week. And it was long because of him today. But remember, I will not preach long during Ecclesiastes. And so next week, we will go through chapters 1 verses 1 through 11. And so let's pray. And so I speak truthfully. That oh, I'm going into glorification. Why do I need to listen to this elementary things again? Really, truly. I will not say any word to you if you don't show up to church. You can just stay at home. And if there's a lot of you, then we'll stop Ecclesiastes. And so here, raise your hand if you want to stop Ecclesiastes. 
Mature Unzo. Raise your hand. You are mature, yes? Let us do Ecclesiastes, yes? But what must be clear is that without God, all things are vain. And for those of you who have yet to begin this fight, through Ecclesiastes, let us begin. To those of you who have stopped, let us begin again. And through Ecclesiastes, open the doors to this new season wide. Even if you are not standing before death, if that is the case, to live or to die should not cause great conflict in us. Because we have all the authority over all the riches. And so if we have been saved and received resurrection, that means that all Hevel has been taken back within me. And so that's why the Bible says rejoice always. Because you know the secret to rejoicing in all circumstances. So look at Paul. Let's just do this one thing really quick. Paul describes his state that has taken back all these hevels. That I am clothed, I, I put on the burden of the death of Jesus Christ. And so if you think about this from one perspective, this is great weight. It's a great burden. How can we burden ourselves with the death of Jesus Christ? To someone who has this vanity in their lives, this is an impossibility. And yet at the same time, because I am clothed in the death of Christ, I live in the life of Christ. Now we may say that this is a result of the process of maturity. But if you have received salvation properly, then whether it's immediately or not, this confession must be experienced by you. Yes? So look, in Philippians, it says the same thing. That I uh, strive to imitate the death of Christ. Right, what does he say first confess in Philippians 3.8? That he empties himself in order to be found in Christ, to be discovered in Christ. And immediately what does he confess? That I imitate his death. And so he's talking about how to empty yourself. Is it possible for an ordinary person to imitate his death? If you have Hevel, these vanities, it's impossible. It's because these things have been taken away that you can make this confession. And here you come to know Christ. Here you come to know resurrection. And here you take partake in his suffering. All of these are confessions of those who have taken back these hevels. And so in Romans 8. 
that I am no longer burdened to the flesh. And so this is the people who have this clear confirmation that their debt of the flesh has been paid. And yet, brothers, you are carrying so much burden. It is so heavy. And so your spirit cannot rise up to the dominion of God. And so you are unable to meet with the practicality, the realness of God's presence in your spirit. And so though the promise says that you can draw near to the throne of grace, you do not know what it means to draw near. Because your spirit is so heavy. And if we use the evidences of Ecclesiastes, you don't know what time, what kairos you are living in. Whether you are in the present, in the future, or in the past. Because of these bindings of the Hevel are weighing you down so, you cannot even discern what time you are living in. And you are constantly bound to this physical time. Bible clearly says you are free. But you are not embodying that spiritual state that can meet with him in freedom. And so we are talking about elementary things through Ecclesiastes. But we must face this season where we deal with this elementary things. And do not drag this time out too long. Eat the word in faith and immediately be loosened. We do not have the time any longer to deal with this leisurely. Just proclaim it and let it be loosened. Amen? And so in you, you will confess, whether in riches or in poverty, that you learn contentment for he who... For I can do all things through him who powers, who gives me strength. That's the maturity that we are looking for. We are not beings who are just suffering whether we can die for him or not. Yes, we are concerned with glory. We are not beings who are concerned with how I'm going to live on this earth. So quickly, immediately, let us go beyond the concerns of Ecclesiastes. Let us draw near to the throne. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, the season of glory is opening. And let this time be a time where all the heavens are taken back. Yes, Lord, that nothing inside of me would not be uh, connected to you. That all things would be subservient to you. That everything would be connected directly to you. And let us avail glory. May we be those who see that glory. Who can give our life for you and your gospel. Yes, Lord, may all the heavens be rolled back. Blood of Jesus. Blood of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we lift up today's offering. May it be a pleasing aroma to you. 
and bless especially this offering for Israel upon the family and their inheritance. May your blessings multiply and may they bless Israel and may Israel be blessed and may the remnant in Israel rise. Be pleased with this offering and though this world is being wrung dry, Lord, may your abundance and riches flow through the remnant to revive your church. For God, this is just the beginning. That, Lord, may multiple, multiple billions be added to, that, to this number. And so, Lord, bless it, receive it, and let it multiply. For your kingdom, may it expand. And now, by the grace of Jesus Christ, through the head of the church, and through the holy love of the Father, through the indwelling, comforting, fulfilling work of the Holy Spirit, to the beloved saints who believe that everything apart from God is Hevel, upon their family, their business, upon their inheritance, upon the church and the missions all over the world, may this blessing rest now and forevermore. Amen.